So I want to talk about death and dying this morning. To lay some groundwork here, the Irish poet Francis Dugan wrote these words in his poem entitled, Death, the Great Equalizer. He said, some die of natural causes, some in a tragic way. But for every single one of us, a final night and day. Without respect for the power of wealth, without respect for fame, death, the great equalizer, treats everyone the same. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. We all have this one thing in common. We will all face death at some point in our lives, and then we face judgment before God. It matters not how famous you are, how much wealth you've accumulated, how much power you've corralled or maybe held over others, you will surely someday die. Now, I hesitated to bring such a somber message this morning, but my purpose in doing so is twofold. First, with the confrontation of our inevitable mortality and any fear that it may stir up within us, we're benefited in the examination of the Scriptures, which prepare us for what is to come with the hope of heaven and the escape of hell. And secondly, and considering the subject of death and dying, it establishes a foundation upon which at least two future messages can be preached, one on heaven and the other on hell. Mary contacted me a couple of days ago to find out uh, what the message would be so that she could pray about the music beforehand in, in worship. When I told her the topic would be on death and dying, she sent me back this response. With our focus on Him as we are walking through this life, death becomes the doorway into the fullness of His glory, love, faithfulness, and worthiness. Hebrews 9, 10-23 are powerful words about Jesus having paved the way to and through death to life. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. What perfect words to consider as we look this morning at death and dying. Several years ago, my spiritual mentor, Dr. J.O. Williams, did an exhaustive study on death, dying, heaven, and hell. And a good bit of the material in the message today comes from the first four parts of his five-part series on death. It was his desire that his labor in the Word be shared with as many people as possible. And knowing that, I've repurposed some of the teaching that I gleaned from him into this message. So let's look together at what the Scripture teaches us concerning death and dying. One of man's oldest and most desperate questions was asked by Job in Job 14.14 14, when he said, if a man dies, will he live again? It really is not a matter of if a man dies, but when. Death is the ultimate statistical reality and certainty for each of us. 100% of us will die one day. We are all terminal. Each of us is only a few heartbeats, a few breaths away from eternity. And yet we hesitate to talk about or even think about death. It's as if we think we will invite its premature presence upon us if we consider it. So we just ignore it, hoping that it'll stay away. Man fears death for many reasons. 
First, it's the great unknown. It's the far country from which no traveler has returned except Jesus Christ alone. We fear death because we fear the loss of cherished relationships with family and friends. God created us to be in relationship, and we fear the loss of those relationships in death. We fear dying alone. We fear death because it may forever bring to an end meaningful activity. God created us to be productive, to work with our hands, a fruitful work, and we fear the loss, that work that brings us joy. Death is certainly a rude intruder for us all. That's why we often refer to someone's untimely death. Psychiatrist Dr. Alfred E. Hoke in the Christianity Today article from 1985 wrote this, Man cannot understand death. To him the thought is intolerable that this whole world of love and friendship, this world of work and devotion, should simply be wiped out. It's intolerable simply to fall by the wayside of life while others go on chattering as if nothing has happened. This mocks all logic. And yet death surrounds us. Falling leaves in the cool of fall. Wilting flowers. The loss of a beloved pet. An accident that claims the life of a friend. The procession of headlights from funeral goers following a hearse down a highway headed to a graveside service. All around us, there are memento mori, reminders of the inevitability of death. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3, 19, 20, 19 and 20 said this, For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Professor Helmut Thielke, a German Protestant theologian from the University of Hamburg, pondered our universal struggle with our own mortality when he said, Why do we keep hastening at our work? Why do we say, I must make the most of my youth? Why do we think now we are in our best years? Now is the time to get it done. Why do we use calendars and clocks? Behind such very ordinary phrases and facts stands the appalling circumstances that hour by hour we realize that we must die, that we have only a limited time. Today we'll never return again. Even the physician who struggles to preserve life fights this battle in the shadow of death. He may fight a delaying action, but he cannot conquer death. And in the end, he himself will be snatched away. We usually swing from one extreme about death to the other. We either ignoring it, hoping it stays away, or we're preoccupied with it in crippling fear. In truth, though, most of us are probably somewhere in the middle, indifferent and preoccupied with our lives. Ernest Becker in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, suggested that the primary concern of every living person is death and that most people deal with the concern by denying that it will ever happen to them. C.S. Lewis recounted a conversation once with a young co-ed 
And he asked her what she thought about her own mortality, and she casually replied, Oh, when it comes my time to die, scientists will have figured out something so that I won't have to. (laughs) Brings to mind the thought that denial is not a river in Egypt. (laughs) Many of us in this room will identify with this next quote from J.L. Williams. When a grandparent dies, we unconsciously sense that our parents serve as buffers between death and us. However, when a parent dies, there's no way to escape the reality that our generation is next in line. Knowing that death is inevitable, what are we doing to prepare ourselves and our children for the sure reality of death? Someone once wrote that some men die by shrapnel and some down in flames, but most men perish inch by inch playing little games. Every day we are preparing for death, either carefully or casually, either hopefully or haphazardly. Most people are tragically unprepared for death. The famous French skeptic Voltaire spent the majority of his adult life belittling the existence of God and the supernatural. However, at his deathbed, his skepticism was of little comfort to him. He purportedly cried out, Oh God, save me. Jesus Christ, save me. God, have mercy upon me. Voltaire's philosophy of life was woefully insufficient in the face of death. So the big question is, how are we preparing for our own death? Not the death of others close to us, but our own death. There are three questions that we need to ask ourselves regularly concerning death. Number one, am I in right relationship with God? Is my heart right before God? And number two, am I in right relationship with others? Is there something I'm harboring in my heart that needs to be dealt with? Is there unforgiveness that needs to be taken care of? And number three, am I investing myself in things that will last for eternity? When we die, we leave everything behind. Everything we've made, everything we bought, created, written, cherished, idolized, and loved. You can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. There's a little plaque that I'm sure most of us had seen at one time or another, either in our grandparents' house or our parents' house or somewhere. And it says this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Over the centuries, man has come up with various theories about death and the afterlife. And these stem from either an ignorance of God's Word or an outright disobedience to it. The first theory is the theory of annihilation or extinction. This is the theory of non-existence after death. It basically says that when we die, we shall be dead and that's it. The philosopher Bertrand Russell once said, when I die, I rot. Epicurus, the Greek pleasure-loving philosopher, said, what men fear is not that death is annihilation, but that it is not. This philosophy has at its core the mantra, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Then there's the theory of reincarnation. The Hindus believe that you must go through 82 million rebirths 
before you're released from this hopeless cycle of reincarnation and are finally absorbed into the cosmic being. This sounds certainly foreign to us and ludicrous, but the Pew Research Center reports that roughly 33% of Americans believe in reincarnation. It's very popular with Hollywood stars and celebrities. Then there's the theory of universalism, which teaches a second chance after death. There are many in both Protestantism and Catholicism who hold to this belief in different forms. They contend that because God is such a loving God, He would never condemn anyone to an external existence, an eternal existence apart from Him. The Bible nowhere teaches this doctrine. Those that hold to this belief do so because it's based on assumption, not revelation, or intuition, not incarnation. Then there's the doctrine of purgatory. This doctrine teaches about an intermediate state following death, a layover, if you will, uh, a stopover for souls en route to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's a place of temporal rather than the eternal punishment for sins committed in this life and not absorbed through the Catholic or absolved through the Catholic sacrament of penance. This belief teaches the idea of suffering in some way for your own sins. This doctrine was one of the major issues that spawned the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers clung to sola fide, or, or salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone and not by works of righteousness, as seen in Ephesians 2, 8-9. through 9. Remember this principle. There's absolutely nothing that any of us can do to save ourselves. Absolutely nothing in this life or the next. We're saved by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Then there's the theory of soul sleep or unconsciousness. There are several cults that adhere to this doctrine, but it's totally unbiblical. Paul taught that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. To the thief on the cross who asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus replied, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. There are many other references that refute the theory of soul sleep. So there are many theories about the next life, but only one firsthand authoritative account that can be trusted and fully trusted. As J.L. once said, before the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we were all like the rest of the peoples of the world who had looked with puzzlement and confusion at the moon. What was on the other side? Indeed, was there another side? What's the surface of the moon like? Is there life there? The dark side of the moon remained a great secret and mystery until astronaut Neil Armstrong went there and returned. Finally, the mystery was solved. The questions were answered. The superstitions were dispelled. Jesus Christ is the only person to pass over to the dark side of the grave and come back. Because of Christ, we have an authoritative account. Death is not the end. So as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 90.12, so teach us to number our days 
that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Here are ten truths from Scripture concerning physical death. Number one, we are all doomed to die. Psalm 79.11 and Psalm 102.20, to hear the groaning of the prisoner to set free those who were doomed to death. Second point, the Bible teaches that death is an abnormal condition. Death was not a part of God's original plan for man and is therefore an enemy of God. And the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15.26, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Biblical Christianity does not teach or counsel an acceptance of death. It is a hated enemy with whom we can never establish peace. C.S. Lewis wrote, Of all men we hope most of death, yet nothing will reconcile us to, well, its unnaturalness. We know that we were not made for it. We know how it crept into our destiny as an intruder, and we know who has defeated it. Point number three, the Bible teaches that death came as a result of sin, the fall of man. When man sinned, he immediately moved from the state of spiritual life to a state of spiritual death, and that death was passed on to all humanity. Professor Helmut Thielke said, the Bible takes all these riddles of life from the mystery of death to the birth pangs of every mother to the sweat and toil of labor and declares that all contradictions and absurdities of life are manifestations of the creature's disobedience to the Creator. They reveal that the world is no longer whole and sound and that it's lost its peace because it's lost its peace with God. Number four, the Bible teaches that the entirety of man's nature was involved in the death process. Sin has resulted in the death of man in spirit, soul, and body. At physical death, point number five, man moves from a bodily existence to a bodiless existence as man's spirit and soul are separated from the body. Number six, every person will experience physical death one day except the living believers in Christ that are alive when the rapture of the church takes place. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 tell us that they will be changed in an instant. Point seven, death will intensify during the Great Tribulation with more than one half of the then living population being killed through one means or another. Number eight, death will continue through the millennium but will be greatly reduced during that time due to the favorable conditions of life brought about by the reigning Jesus Christ. Isaiah 65.20 tells us that long life will be restored. Point nine, death will finally be thrown into the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment, as we see in Revelations 20. And finally, point ten, there shall be no more death. Praise God. Revelations 21.4 If Christ is your Lord and Savior, then He is your life in this life and your hope in the next. It's not a future experience, but a present reality. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death 
into life. That's the experience that all of us in this room have experienced. Because of Him we are justified, and only justification gives life where there was death. Romans 5, 1-2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've received an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Only justification gives life where there was death, and only sanctification makes it possible for us to experience abundant life, which is the earthly experience of eternal life. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Here are some verses from the Old Testament that speak of death and life after death in the, in the Scripture. Psalm 115, 17-18 The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any go down in the silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Mm-hmm. Psalm 116.15 Precious is the, in the sight of the Lord is the death of His godly ones. The reason the death of His godly ones is precious to the Lord is that through death they enter into His presence. Psalm 16.10 For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Isaiah 25.8 He will swallow up death for all time. Hosea 13.14 and 1 Corinthians 15.55 I will ransom them, ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are your horns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Job 19, 25-27 And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. From a biblical viewpoint, death is the great separation. It's the irrevocable door to Sheol Hades, through which every man walks into an eternal destiny of his choice, either a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment, John 5.29. Physical death is the separation of the spirit and soul from the body, the material from the immaterial, the temporal from the eternal, the mortal from the immortal, and the physical from the metaphysical. At death, the spirit and soul of the righteous go on to the third heaven or highest heaven where God is to await the first resurrection when their glorified spirit and soul will be united with their glorified body. At death, the spirit and soul of the unrighteous go to torment to await the second resurrection and the great white throne judgment and eternal punishment in the lake of fire or Gehenna. We'll talk more about Gehenna in a message later on about hell. The reality is that we are each dust and we are each divine. We're both dust and divine. Our Our body is dust in origin and our spirit soul is divine in origin. The other side of this reality of death 
is the grief that we experience because of the death of those we love. Knowing that God hates death gives us some solace, but the absence of those we love cannot be easily filled or forgotten. At the loss of his beloved wife, Joy, C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, A Grief Observed, the death of a beloved is an amputation. Her absence is like the sky spread over everything. For in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always recurs. Round and round, everything repeats. Am I going in circles or dare I hope, dare I hope I'm on a spiral? But if a spiral, am I going up or down it? How often will it be for always? How often will the vast emptiness astonish me like a complete novelty and make me say, I never realized my loss till this moment. The same leg is cut off time after time. That's grief. And grief can be almost unbearable if not for the love of God and the comfort of His presence in our pain. For the believer, death is not to be feared, but rather to be loathed and carefully and expectantly prepared for. I know this has been a lot to cover this morning, but I I hope it's given you a fresh perspective on death. Death is the quintessential elephant in the room. (laughs) People don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. But as believers, we need to prepare for it for ourselves and for those that we love. And it's the stories that were shared earlier, a sensitivity to people around us. Everywhere there's pain, there's suffering, there's dying. Uh, And those are opportunities to give life. I'm reminded of that awe-inspiring observation of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12, through where he says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works on us, but life in you. We are to live each day as if it were our last, taking every opportunity to redeem the time to the glory of God. So this morning we should ask ourselves, Are we in right relationship with God? Are we in right relationship with others? And are we engaged in and invested in things that are eternal? Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed that You have called us out of darkness into Your marvelous light by Your grace and mercy alone. We confess anew, Lord, that there's nothing we can do to warrant Your favor or It's just your, that's what your grace is, is unmerited favor. 
I thank You that Your mercies are new to us this morning. That you are faithful. And what You call us to in this life is to be a light in the darkness. To draw others to that light in preparation for the next. So Lord, may we honestly answer those three questions this week. And in doing so, Lord, may we gain a new perspective, a new a push, Lord, to, to do the things that bring You joy and that give You pleasure in, in our lives. So Lord, we lay ourselves before You anew and afresh today and just ask You, Lord, to do the surgeries in our hearts that need to be done. Make us aware of the things, Lord, that are unresolved, that need to be resolved. And I pray, Lord, for a new, fresh vision for our activity, for our work, the things that we lay our hands to. Help us to make wise choices about things to lay down and things to pick up. I thank You for Your Word and the comfort that it brings I thank You, Lord, that we can come boldly before Your throne of grace and receive grace and mercy in times of need. I pray that Your peace would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The things we say to one another, the things we do for one another would be pleasing in Your sight. We love You, Lord Jesus. We thank You for Your great mercy. We thank You for this day that You've made that we can rejoice and be glad in it. We ask these things in Jesus' name.